Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. It's good to be with friends from around the world, from our friends from Finland and friends from Ghana. I don't know what to do with this. Everybody's having voice problems, so I thought I'd better be safe. I never bring water up with me, but I thought I'd do it this time. And I'm going to step on and spill it. Get it in my sight, line of sight. It's good to be with uh, this fellowship. It always is, and good to be in this part of the country. And uh, I want to speak to you tonight about uh, this subject of freedom, which is what the gospel really is all about. All in for freedom. You can visit our table, look at some of our resources. That's on one slide. And I really do encourage you to get our app because uh, it puts a lot of our resources at your fingertips. Our Grace Notes are the most downloaded thing on our website is the Grace Notes. And it puts them right in your fingertip in eight different languages and more to come. And the second most downloaded thing is an outline and an and introductory material in every book of the Bible, Old Testament and New. We've only got the New Testament up right now. And uh, we've kind of been... The app's only a couple years old, so we're still loading stuff into it. So get the app and put all these things at your fingertips. People have found it very convenient. I was in Myanmar uh, some years ago, and um, because my ministry does take me different places, can't go there now because of military coup. Unfortunately, they've kind of shut things down. But um, next slide. Um, I was in Myanmar and walking around the streets with my host, and we came upon an interesting sight which you'll see in just a moment here. Oh, uh, okay, we're, we're, we're going to talk about uh, freedom and uh, the natural tendency of some people to live under the law, not just the law of Moses. Sometimes that's not enough for people. So um, we extrapolate even more and more. I'm going to have to take some shortcuts because of the time factor tonight, but... Let's go to the Myanmar slide. I was in the country of Myanmar walking the streets with my host and we came upon this boy crouched by a bowl full of little birds with a net on top. And I asked my friend, I said, what is is this all about? And he says, well, the Buddhists believe if you buy one of the birds and set it free, it adds to your karma. Well, I felt my karma was just fine, but I did feel sorry for the little birds, so I pitched in my 50 cents worth of currency and I took a bird out of the bowl and I released it. It was free. It was free because I paid for his freedom. And you know where I'm going with this. Our gospel says salvation is free, eternal life is free because somebody paid for it. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption, the purchase of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Unfortunately, many people are still in bondage. They're in bondage to Satan and his fear of death or in the bondage of the penalty of sin. They've not yet discovered the gift of eternal life. They are like birds that are still in the cage. Even though the price has been paid, they're not free. The poet William Blake said, a robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Because, as someone said, God made birds, men made bird cages. I think the same thing is true of humans, don't you think? That God made us to be free, 
to become who he meant us to be, not to be controlled by laws or expectations or conditions foisted upon us by others, whether it's in the gospel or in the Christian life. He intended us to be free like birds and to fly and enjoy the freedom that he gives to us. Well, there's a book about freedom in the New Testament you know, the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is an interesting book because Martin Luther loved it. He came to Christ through the book of Romans, but he, but he called um, Galatians his Katie or his second wife. He loved the book of Galatians because it talked about freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ. In fact, some have called it the charter of Christian liberty. And just to refresh your mind, because you're all scholars and know already, but the book of Galatians starts out with him defending his authority as an apostle and, um, and how he preached the gospel to them at the beginning, how they departed from it, you know. And, and then he goes into a doctrinal section where he defends uh, salvation by grace as opposed to the law and its purpose. And then he comes to a practical section in chapters five and six, and that's where we're going to spend a little bit of time anyway. We're set free by grace, and there's only one gospel that frees us, and that's the gospel that Paul said, you, I am so surprised that you have so soon departed from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He was so surprised that even though he had been there not long ago, they have been infiltrated by the, what we'll call Judaizers, though we're preaching the law, trying to bring the Galatians back into the law. They spied out their liberty. For some reason, it's human nature to despise others who are free and want to bring people under your control. But anyway, that was the situation in Galatia, and they're trying to get these people back under the law. But Paul said, hey, the gospel I received, I received directly from Jesus Christ, no, from no man, not even the other apostles. I received it directly from Jesus Christ. And if anybody preaches another gospel, even an angel from heaven, let him be anathema, accursed, condemned by God. That's how seriously he took the message. And he goes on to talk about how he had to oppose Peter because Peter was contradicting the message and how he did resist the Judaizers by not circumcising Titus because they were demanding as part of Titus's salvation, justification or sanctification that he be circumcised. Well, he circumcised Timothy, but that was a preemptively diffuse, a cultural situation. But he refused to circumcise Titus as a demand for his salvation and so he stood firm for this gospel that he'd preached to them. The price had been paid and they had been set free. And he's trying to say, why do you want to go back under that bondage? The, the theme of freedom is echoed throughout the New Testament. It begins with Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished. If it's finished, what's left to be paid? That means it's done, it's free. The price has been paid, we've been released. There's nothing else that can be done. But there's a lot of verses. In Romans chapter 6, 14 says, you're not under the law, but under grace. John 8, 31 through 32. Joe preached so well last night. I want to add to your sermon, not, not critique it, but if we abide in his word, we're disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, like Joe said, that's a word to Christians, not unbelievers. So what does it mean to Christians that if you abide in his word, the word will set you free? That's not to unbelievers, that's to you and me. It'll set us free from false guilt. It'll set us free from error, false teachers, going back under the law. Yet so many Christians want to go back under the law or under conditions or under some sort of what we might call legalism, which we'll talk a little bit more about. 
My wife and I are going to continue up the East Coast after we leave here. We're going to go drive through Amish country. Wonderful people, wonderful food. I think they invented Scrapple. I don't know. And, um, of course, theologically, they're very not with us. Austere theology and austere lifestyle. They don't believe in motorized vehicles, I think, and telephones and things like that. I, read, I actually read a newspaper article. An Amish man was arrested and put into prison. And it was, when it was time to be released, he refused to go because he enjoyed watching television so much in prison. <laughs> what, does it say, what does it say to you about a religious system where you'd rather be in prison than go back into the religious system? If people only knew what it was like to be free from sin and its consequences and its penalty through the gospel of grace... Why would they ever want to go back into the prison of works that so many we hear preached so much by so many people? Well, the Bible goes on, Galatians, he says to, that God made us his sons. We're no longer slaves, Galatians chapter 4. And there, that passage is echoed in other passages. He says, because you're sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Papa, Father. You hear that word, Abba, even if you go to the Mideast today. Please don't go there today. That's the elephant in the room, isn't it? What's happening in Israel? We need to pray for Israel at some point, perhaps. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. The same words are echoed in Romans chapter 8, and I'm not going to read it for you. What's the difference between a slave and a son? A slave is compelled to do things. A son does things voluntarily. The attitude of a master towards his slave is different from an attitude of a father towards his son. If a slave spills the milk, he gets beaten. If a son spills the milk, the father gets down on the floor and helps him wipe it up and dries his tears. That's the difference between a slave <clears throat> and a son. And that's the freedom that we find in Christ. And what he's saying in chapter 5, verse 1, where I really kind of want to land, is that he's saying, stand firm in the freedom by which Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, in their liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't go back under the law. So he bridges now into a practical section because you have to understand, I think, the mindset of the Galatians as Jews who had been living under the law and the law controlled every detail of your life. It told you what to do every day. It told you how to worship God. It told you what to do. It regulated your life. And then Paul comes along and says, you're free. You don't have to follow the law. And the natural question for anybody, so I you have to sympathize and think of things from the Galatians' point of view. Okay, then how do I live? How do I live on, under this freedom? And that's what he addresses now. First of all, you don't want to go back under bondage. You want to stand firm where you are. Uh, don't live like children of, or slave children. Live like sons of God. That's what God has made you to be. So you have a new position in Christ. You've been justified where God says you're okay when you're not really okay. But now in the process of sanctification, you're to become okay. Live up to what God says you are. But both are by grace. Justification is by grace and sanctification is by grace. And so there's no reason to go back under the law. It will do you no good. It's a, it's a question of performance versus acceptance. The law was conditioned upon performance. If you keep the law, you'll be blessed. Grace says you're 
if you're blessed, so therefore obey. There's a great difference in perspective. Basically, what he's telling them is to stay away from the bondage of legalism. Now, what is legalism? Let's talk about that just a little bit. Legalism, let's put it this way, is conformity to an artificial standard to supposedly please God based on an attitude of self-righteous pride and self-exhortation. There's nothing wrong with obeying God and his commands or his uh, exhortations. We don't want to call that legalism because that's good to obey God, but what is the spirit behind it, you see? Is it, a, is it a have to spirit or a want to spirit? If we're obeying God in order to earn his acceptance, that would be legalism of some kind. And you can kind of discern different kinds of legalism. There's what we might call salvific legalism. Those who believe you have to do certain works or make certain commitments or make Jesus Lord of your life, or be baptized, you fill in the blank, in order to be saved. That's salvific legalism. Maybe the Galatians were beyond that. They had evidently trusted Christ as their Savior, so they're maybe falling into the second kind of legalism, where they have to, they feel like they need to complete what was started, and they have to complete that by going on back under the law. Oh, Galatians, it's fine that you've believed in Jesus as your Savior, but if you really want to fully uh, be a complete Christian, you need to go back under the law. It'll tell you how to live. Now, we have a, we have a form of that, uh, in, even in Protestantism today. Uh, you know, we have to keep the Ten Commandments, and so we post them in the classrooms, in the Sunday school classrooms, and we imply that to be accepted to God, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. And that's what we might call a sanctification form of legalism. Then there's a religious form of legalism, or maybe we call it a cultural form of legalism. Um, and it's a little more subtle. It's subtle. Uh, you know, I, I, I brought a shirt to wear tonight, for example, and I, I'm so comfortable in this Grace Life sweatshirt and warm. It, it, you gotta get one. It's like fuzzy on the inside. I've never preached in a sweatshirt before, but it's so comfortable, I'm gonna do it tonight. Well, why am I even worried about preaching in a, in, a, in a pressed shirt that I have out in the car? Cultural expectations, we want to live up to the expectations of someone else. And so churches argue about, is it grape juice or wine? Is it once a week or once a month? Or every, uh, is it the first Sunday of the month? Or how often do we do communion? How do we do communion? What kind of music do we listen to? What kind of movies do we see? How are we going to dress? Go overseas and you... You run into that issue quite a bit. Makeup, all kinds of issues. Related to the culture, church traditions, rituals that people get used to. And so we begin to elevate culture and ritual or traditions above the word of God. And what did Jesus have to say about those who elevated traditions above the word of God? He had deep words, strong words about the Pharisees and their traditions that they put before the word of God. So there's, there, there's that subtle legalism that seeps into churches. We started our church in Burleson, Texas, and uh, one of the new families there, we needed a vacuum cleaner. So I went out and bought a, a Dirt Devil vacuum cleaner. And uh, I come in one Sunday and I noticed that one of the, I knew who did it, one of the church ladies had paint, painted over the word devil. Can't have that in our church. Oh, there were other issues I could tell you about with them, but 
I don't know. My, my friend um, was here last night. I don't know if you saw him. Hard to miss him. He had an afro that stuck out this big. Larry. Larry and I got saved together. He's, and he lives here in Maryland, so he came up last night. He has to work during the day. But we got saved together, and we were rejoicing in our salvation. Uh, but, but we got saved. We were living together in an apartment, and a, a lady that we work with, a young lady that we work with about our age, shared the gospel with us. We both got saved. And then she went back. It was a summer job. She went back, and we just started reading the Bible. We didn't have a church, so we just started reading the Bible every night and talking to each other and sharing the Bible. Essentially, what we did is disciple each other for a year. We didn't know where to go. We shared what we read and what we discovered in the scriptures. And so this is great, you know. We didn't have anywhere to go, but, but you know what? We were living in Lanham, Maryland. And guess what's in Lanham, Maryland? Washington Bible College. It was just several blocks from where we were living. Let's go check this Bible college out. So Doug's a graduate from Washington Bible College. We went to Washington Bible College and we checked it out. We went to talked to the registration and, and we went through that process. And that process, they said, well, you know, one of the, our rules here is you have to have your hair can't touch your ears. Well, I had one of those 80s shaggy haircuts, um, not to mention my platform shoes and my maxi coat and all that other stuff. I had just, I was only two, you know, a new Christian. It's embarrassing to think what I wore back then. But Larry has his bush back then. You can't see his ears. So we look at each other. And we say, oh, we're not having any of this. And we walked out of there. And we went home and we talked about it. And we said, you know what? There's a lot of Bible knowledge there. We need that. We, let's cut our hair and let's become spiritual. <laughs> so just like that, we were spiritual Christians. We enrolled in Washington Bible College, <clears throat> from which I graduated and went on to seminary from there. And you know, I'm not criticizing Washington Bible College. They declared me alumnus of the year. How can I criticize? Right before they folded, last, last alumnus of the year. <laughs> You give and you take, you know. No, you have to have rules. But some go a little bit far with their rules, okay? And the hair rule, that was the thing back then. I don't think they would even have that today. You got to have some rules. So anyway, I don't want to be hard on them. There's even another kind of theological uh, legalism I want to address, and I'm labeling it myself. I've not read about this. I'm just going to call it theological legalism. And that's those who insist that their doctrine is right and have no room for anything else. And maybe Jesus described it as he did the Pharisees who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You didn't say it right. You didn't say it the way I, I said you should say it. You didn't share the gospel clearly enough. You didn't give a good invitation. You can't use those words. You can't pray that prayer. There will be people who will scrutinize the messages preached today and will be there will be pushback on things that were said. That's a shame. Sorry to have to say that. And the criticism won't come from those who are not with us. It might from the Calvinists, Lordship, Salvation people. It will come from people who claim to be grace ministries. And they'll criticize things that were said about the gospel or things that were said about evangelism. My friend um, Greg Steer, he has a, you know the name probably, he has an international youth ministry, November 11th, Dare to Share. Get your youth group enrolled in Dare to Share November 11th. He's written a book called Unlikely Fighter. He grew up in 
Denver, Colorado, the bad part of Denver, Colorado, in a kind of a mobster family. His four uncles were weight power lifters, uh, street thugs, okay? And his mom was, and they were afraid of his mom, who was tough in her own way. So anyway, Uncle Jack, for example, was put in prison because he choked two cops at the same time one night. At the same time. So he served time in prison. He was a rough guy. Greg Steer came to know the Lord as youth in Yankee Arnold's church there in Arvada, Colorado, in the Denver area. Yankee Arnold, an evangelist, good friend also in Tampa area right now. On a dare, someone dared him to go share the gospel with his Uncle Jack because everybody else was afraid to. Yankee never shied away from anything I know of. So he went up and knocked on the door, and Uncle Jack opens the door and says, what do you want? Well, I, you know, you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he said, I'll give you five minutes. He went in there. He says his uncle has a beer in one hand, a jar of spit in the other hand. They sit down. Yankee shares the gospel in five minutes, which he's very good at doing. He says, would you like to have the gift of eternal life? Uncle Jack says, hell yeah. <laughs> that was his sinner's prayer. Did it work? He went, on, he went on, according to Greg, to win hundreds of people to Christ and to fill that church up with people. And his other uncles eventually came to believe in his mother, too. His mother was covered with guilt for the life, kind, kind of life she had lived. And Greg finally went in to share the gospel with her and talk to her, explain the gospel to her. And she said, you can believe in Jesus for eternal life. She said, he said uh, she said, is that all there is? He said, that's all you have to do is believe. She said, I'm in. That was her sinner's prayer. No, you can't get saved that way. You didn't say it right. She went on to live a fruitful life. Greg has a wonderful testimony. Read his book, Unlikely Fighter. You know, those who criticize what we're doing when we talk about sharing the gospel, which is what FJ is all about. I like, I like what D.L. Moody said when he was criticized. Somebody said, Moody, I don't like the way you're sharing the gospel. I don't like the way you're doing evangelism. Moody said, I like the way I'm doing it better than the way you're not doing it. Amen. But legalism has a heavy price. You see, he goes on... <clears throat> He goes on to talk about that, and just real briefly, I'll talk about it because we don't want to go through the whole passage, but he says, um, after he says, stand firm and don't go back into bondage, in verse 2, he says, one of the prices, you will not benefit from Christ. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, which is kind of like your way of saying that you're making agreement with and under the law, Christ will profit you nothing. And he'll explain that a little bit more. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that if he is a debtor to keep, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If you decide to go back under the law, you better keep it all, and you better keep it all perfectly. And that's, of course, repeated in James chapter 2, verse 10. If you break one, you've broken the whole law. Broken the whole law. So what are you going to buy into? You're going to buy into the performance system? Then you better get 100% on the final test. And then he comes to verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You've been justified by faith, but if you think if you can finish off or complete that justification by keeping the law, you've fallen from grace. Now, what does that mean? 
Uh, I could spend a lot of time explaining it, or I could tell you to go look at Grace Notes number 14 on your new app. <laughs> and there's a complete explanation of that verse. But just real briefly, some of the different translations, you've become estranged from Christ, you have been severed from Christ, you've been severed from Christ, another translation. But what does it mean to fall from grace? Some people think it means that the Galatians were heading for salvation, but they've fallen away, so they're not going to be saved because they never accepted the gospel. Others believe it means that if you go, for some reason, keeping the law, you lose your salvation that you had. But the interpretation, of course, I think you would agree with is that to those who go back under the law, they forfeit the benefits of God's grace that comes in sanctification. So if you decide to do it on your own, in other words, then Christ can't help you. And all the blessings of grace and all the blessings that flow from the throne of grace will no longer be to your benefit. Picture a young teenager sitting at the table trying to figure out an algebra problem. And he just can't, he's been working on it 10 minutes and his father says, you need some help with that? His father happens to be a professor of mathematics at the local university. Boy says, no, I'm going to do this on my own. What has he done? By doing it on his own strength, in his own power, he has forfeited or severed himself from the benefits he could receive from his father. Those who go back under the law and try to complete what Jesus said has been finished are forfeiting the grace they could receive through Jesus Christ. The word sever doesn't mean to be totally cut off from it, but it means to cause something to be unproductive or to lose its power of effectiveness, to be released or discharged from, some, from something. I would paraphrase it this way. If you try to be justified and finish your justification by your own efforts, then Christ's gracious blessings will not benefit you. And so it's sad to see so many people trying to live a Christian life and be good and spiritual Christians by keeping the law. Well, as you know, Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 5, uh, I mean Galatians chapter 5, that, that um, it, it's, it's by the Spirit that we bear fruit and it's by the Spirit we live. That's how you live apart from the law, is you walk in the Spirit. Let the Spirit produce the convictions in you about what is right and wrong. Let the Spirit tell you how long your hair should be, all right? Don't conform to other people's rules and laws in order to become spiritual because that then becomes external. That's legalism. And it's not the real you. It's not the way God meant you to be or the way God meant you to, lead, to live. Legalists will harm your spiritual walk is what he goes on to say in verses 7 through 12, which we don't, we're not going to cover that, but he, he goes on to talk about how they've been spying out your liberty and it's, if you follow them, you're going to be in big trouble. I like what he says in verse 13 through 15, however, use your freedom to love and to serve others. You know, the scary thing about freedom is you can do whatever you want to do, technically speaking. But we're not free to do anything. We're free to serve God. That's his purpose for us. That's why he grants us freedom. So back to our story in Myanmar, or some little piece I left out of that story. When I picked this little bird up and was ready to set it free, it bit the heck out of my finger. Thank you. He was free to do it. <laughs> Sometimes we bite the hand that frees us. We can despise God's grace. We can abuse God's grace. 
we can live according to our own power or live in sin. We have the freedom to do that. Why would we want to do that? Why wouldn't we love the one who set us free? So we're to use our freedom. He, he goes on to say, don't use it to bite, and devour, to bite and devour one another. Use it to love and serve one another. You know, we're often accused in the free grace movement of preaching a gospel that gives people a license to sin. It's such a hollow argument because I know no one who does that. You may know someone, but I know thousands of people who use the grace of God as an excuse to serve God out of gratitude and love. But freedom always comes at a price, as ours did, and the price was, of course, Jesus Christ. Paul paid a heavy price for preaching the gospel of grace, didn't he? Counted by legalists everywhere he went. Uh, read the list of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I can't believe, you know, he doesn't describe the, those things in the book of Acts. They were left out by Luke. Shipwreck twice? He doesn't say that. Shipwreck once is enough for any lifetime. And he goes on and on and on. Luther paid a price when he discovered the gospel of grace. He was threatened. His life was threatened. He was excommunicated. But a price has been paid for our freedom, just like we in America would appreciate the price that there went before us, those who paid with their own blood so that we could be a free nation. And so that we could remain free. Freedom is in our DNA as a nation, I think freedom is, is on our DNA as made in God's image. We long to be free. And so now Israel's under attack. Terrible situation. What I heard this morning is that 10,000 people are flying in from all over the world to help them fight Hamas. To help Israel remain free. And people are willing to pay with their blood to do that. I don't know if it's true. I heard it on the news, so you never know. We have a holiday called Juneteenth. You know what the story of Juneteenth is? You probably don't. Some of you do. January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared that all slaves were free. At this point, well, at, by the end of the war, 360,000 Union soldiers had paid for their life, paid for with their lives in the war. 360,000 people blacks and whites both, paid, <clears throat> paid that the slaves could be free. And yet, some of the southern slave owners didn't tell their slaves that legally they were free. They kept the truth from them. They kept them in ignorance. They kept them in the fields. And so, on June 19, 1865, it was announced by a, a Union Army uh, officer that you slaves in Galveston, is where it happened, you're free. And when there's great celebration and rejoicing, because they realized after more than two years that they were free, and yet they had been living in slavery. That's the situation I think we see in our world today is we see people living apart from Christ. They've been set free by the blood of Christ. No one's told them. We see people in churches who assume that you have to do good to be good. You have to do good to be acceptable to God. Some form of legalism, but they just haven't understood what grace is really all about. 
Liberty needs to be balanced by love. You can go to the extreme of license. You can go to the extreme of legalism. But what controls our liberty? What keeps us on the right path? It's the love of God. If we love one another, Paul, Jesus, both said, you fulfill the law. Isn't that wonderful? It's just one command, the great command. Just love others. Well, let me share a little bit about my, my personal story, my personal journey to freedom. And I'll try to be brief. To understand my story, you have to go back with me to uh, my well, Europe in the 1700s, my mom's immigrant, my mom's uh, ancestors immigrated into the United States. They probably were Christians, probably were getting religious freedom. We don't know a lot about it, but they planted churches up and down the Shenandoah Valley, settled in southwest Virginia. My mom ends up being raised there in the mountains of southwest Virginia. During the war, she went to the United, uh, to Washington, D.C. to work. To understand my, the, my father's side, you have to go back with me to uh, the 1870s in China, where poor families, and maybe even still today, sold their girls because they were so poor. So picture with me a man taking his little daughter by the hand to the market, saying, oh, we're just going to go get a piece of candy today. And in the marketplace, they meet a woman, and she hands him a bag of coins, and he hands her her daughter. And of course, she turns around and watches her father walk away. It's the last time she'll ever see. She's put into a room in a house <clears throat> with other girls who are scared and crying, and they don't know where they are, what they're doing, what's going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> and in a couple days, they're led to the docks and put on a big boat. They've never even been on a boat before. They're put on this big ship way down in the bottom hole where it's dark and dingy and dusty and, and rats are running and it becomes wretched and, and the stench is unbearable for weeks as they travel across the ocean through storms. <clears throat> they reach their destination and she comes out into the sunlight and she sees a country that she doesn't recognize. She's people with white skin, look strange to her. They speak a language she doesn't understand. She's handed off. Another More money is exchanged. She's handed off to a Chinese man. You see, in those days, there were a lot of Chinese men in America because they'd go to China and recruit the men to work on the railroads. And they pretty much became indentured slaves. And that's my grandfather's story. Pretty much became an indentured slave because they kept your wages. You had to pay for your passage. You got to pay for this, your food, and so forth. And uh, they abused them, gave them the hardest jobs they could, the most dangerous jobs they could. Kept them out of the photographs when the railroad was finished. Told them to get out of the way. That famous photograph. The Chinese were there in the background watching that. So this little girl is handed off, sold to another man, Chinese man, eight years old. When she's 13, something's happening to her body. She doesn't know what it is. She's pregnant. She has a little baby, that baby dies. Shortly afterwards, she has another baby, that baby dies. She has a third baby. A couple years later, <clears throat> that baby lives. But she's tired of the abuse, sexual, verbal, physical abuse in that house. She's tired of being a slave. DNA is in her blood. So she, in the middle of the night, she breaks through her bed through <clears throat> bedroom wall. She doesn't know where she's going. <clears throat> she doesn't know anybody. She doesn't know how to speak the language, but she's free. Somehow she makes her way in the world. She would never tell people exactly what she did. She would just say, there are some things you do. If people know about it, they'll never forgive you. But she ended up in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> she took the name Mamie, and she met a man 
named Chan Chong Bing. He took the name Charlie, Charlie Chan Bing. And they married in Washington, D.C. And he started a couple business. Wouldn't you know it, a laundromat in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Became very successful at it. Mayor of Chinatown in Washington, D.C. was a big shot, but he was a gambler, a womanizer, an alcoholic, uh, and, and an abuser himself. And when the Depression came, he lost his business. He went back to China, took all the money, left, left my grandmother. And now, a little boy, my father, destitute. They had to move in with relatives, and somehow they survived. But at least they were free. In fact, somehow, my grandmother managed to put my father through Purdue University and get a degree in engineering. He worked for the government 35 years, retired. That's why we live in the Washington, D.C. area. I guess freedom is in my DNA as well. But the journey wasn't complete for my grandmother. We, she lived with us for 17 years um, until she died at the age of 90. And I was about 18, 17 years old when she died, something like that. But you see, one day, she was invited to church to hear a Chinese missionary who spoke her language teach a Sunday school class. And she could hear the gospel in her own language for the first time. And when she did, she believed in Christ as her Savior. And she was baptized. I have her baptismal certificate in her first Bible at home. And even though she lived with us, she could never read the Bible. We'd buy her picture Bibles. But, so I was raised in this home. And we weren't a religious home, but we were dropped off at church every Sunday. And I attended Sunday school perfectly for seven years. But it was boring. I got tired of it. Memorized some Bible verses, but never really understood. I, understood, I could recite John 3.16, but I didn't, couldn't explain it to you. Yeah, Jesus died for the sins of the world, but what's that got to do with me? Didn't make the connection. Grew up in this religious environment in my teenage years, of course, stopped going to church once they gave me some freedom, and did what teenagers did in the 60s, okay? A life of sin and lasciviousness and everything else you want to think of and don't want to think of. My wife and I, we decided to go visit her old homes a couple days, a few days ago, and we drove by her old home. We drove by my old neighborhood. I gave her a little tour of my neighborhood. Yeah, that's where Randy lives. He's dead of cancer. They just died last year. And up the street here, that's where Tommy lived. He was a heroin addict from the time of junior high all through high school. I don't know where he is today, if he's even alive. And that's the house, a couple houses up where Frank lived. Frank used to hang out at the pool hall, and he ended up robbing somebody and murdering him and spent time in jail. We a little further up the street, and that's the home of my first girlfriend there. And a little further on, there's my best friend Bobby used to live there, and, and um, another, another fellow, Jimmy and Jerry, used to live there. And uh, there's the home of my second girlfriend there. And at this point, I realized I need to give a probably a little shorter tour of the neighborhood. <laughs> As a teenager, uh, I had all kinds of hobbies. One of the hobbies I picked up was uh, uh, learning to pick locks. And I got, we got a hold of us, a couple of us, we got a hold of a professional set of lock picks. And we could pick locks like crazy. So it was, a, it was a challenge to us to pick a lock. We would pick locks off of sheds and off of gates and off of bicycles. But we never took anything. We didn't need anything. We were just doing it for fun. And I had in the back my backyard, I had a barrel full of locks like that. We'd pick them behind our back while people were watching. They didn't know what we were doing. If you know how to pick a lock, you can do that. 
But, you know, then, then I got into the, the early, later teens and, and uh, drugs and alcohol became a thing. And, oh, there, there's the house where I passed out from drugs and almost died. And John Lennon imagined was echoing through my head. <laughs> Today it still triggers me. I hate that song. And then I stopped at one, one house. I said, you see across the field, that, that house there is the only house I ever broke into with my friends. Broke into it and stole some jewelry and sold it. We knew they weren't home. Okay, fast forward. So Larry and I are living in the apartment. We get saved. I become a Christian. And I go to this Bible church. And the pastor's discipling me. Pastor Clem Walshauser is discipling me. And my conscience is bothering me. I've done all these things to hurt people. My parents, my friends, uh, people I don't know, people I've stolen from. I want a clear conscience. I'm, I'm free from the penalty of sin, but I don't feel free in my conscience. You understand what I'm saying? I need to go back and make good on some things. So I called everybody I could think of and asked for forgiveness. Some th just thought I was weird. I've become a Christian. I just want to ask you to forgive me for what I did. And then I went back to some, some of the houses. But wisely, Pastor Clem insists on going with me just to protect me. We knocked on some doors. I stole, a few years ago, I stole your bicycle. My name's Charlie. I've become a Christian. God's God's uh, given me eternal life, and I'd like to ask you to forgive me, and I want to pay you back for what I, what I did, motorcycles, whatever. You know, nobody ever asked to be paid back. Some of them would cry. Some of them would say, well, we're happy for you. But nobody ever asked to be paid back. They were just happy for me. It was tough to do that. It went on for weeks, I think. Went back to that house, knocked on the door one Saturday morning, and an older lady answers the door. My name's Charlie. <clears throat> I just want you to know, you remember your house was broken into a few years ago and some things were stolen. She says, yeah, I can't replace those things. I said, well, I want you to know I did it and I want to ask your forgiveness and I'm willing to pay you back whatever is necessary. She just didn't know what to say. You can imagine her. She's just sitting there dumbfounded. She's mumbling some things. Maybe she forgave me. I don't know. Pastor says, well, can he come and do some yard work for you? He said, yeah, I, I guess that would be good. And I'm thinking, yeah, I, can, I could work a couple Saturday mornings and do some yard work. And then Pastor Clem says, how about every Saturday for the next six months? <laughs> That's what I did every Saturday for the next six months. I'd go over there, dig holes, plant plants, cut wood, fix things, whatever it took. And she got a little bit comfortable with the idea of me being sincere and so forth. It got to the point where even after I was finished, I'd go over and shovel her snow because I knew she couldn't do it herself. But my conscience was clear. My conscience was clear. It's the freedom that Christ brings. Stand firm in that freedom. Don't give it up. That's what we're all about. That's what Asari challenged us with today. It's not, it's not just sharing the gospel, if we can say that. It's sharing freedom. It's releasing people from their chains, from their bondage, whether they're unbelievers who need to know what it's like to be free from the penalty sin, or it's believers who are living in the fear and insecurity of not knowing whether they're going to wake up in heaven or hell if they die. Meet them every day. Pastors. Let a couple dozen pastors to the Lord this year in Burundi. They'll tell you. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I tell my congregation, I don't know if you're going to heaven. Like an Indian pastor said to us at the end of our training, he said, I used to tell my congregation, I may go to hell and you may go to hell. I don't know. 
But after going to your conference, I'm damn sure I'm going to heaven. <laughs> Amen. That's the way the translator told it to me anyway. <laughs> what does freedom mean to you then? Did that, did that picture make it up there of my past, my, my long hair? I don't know. I'm getting lost in this. That was my picture when I, when I went to the University of Maryland before I was saved. Uh, because that's what you're supposed to do is go to college. And I had long hair. Oh, you did? I had long hair. You probably can't see my earring in there. That was a radical thing back then. I went to the University of Maryland Blue the first year because I stayed out till 3 a.m. partying. And then, then I got saved. And I got saved because a friend and I went out partying one night, doing our usual thing. He wanted to do some heroin. I didn't do heroin because heroin, he, he told me, he's from the devil, don't do it. So I didn't, but I'd help him shoot up. And so one night we're at a party and a friend walks, Tommy walks in, in fact, and Tommy wants to sell him some heroin. I said, don't, no, you're not going to do that tonight. We're going to party. Because you know when you take heroin, well, you don't know. When you take heroin, you just, go, you just go to sleep. You just nod out all night. That's no fun. So we got in an argument. Then we got in a fight on the third, third floor apartment. We fought all the way down to the, until somebody threw us outside on the lawn. And our friends broke us up. And my friend was covered with blood. It was my blood. Somebody drove us home, got home around midnight. He lived next door to me. Well, a couple minutes later, we got cleaned up. A few minutes later, he's knocking on the door. Charlie, let's, let's go out and buy a case of beer. So we got a case of beer. Everything was good. We got back home about 3 a.m., went to bed. The next morning at 9 a.m., my mom's shaking me awake. Wake up, wake up. Jerry's dead. He died in his sleep. He bought that heroin. That got me thinking. You know, teenagers don't live forever after all. And I said, what am I going to do with my life? I cut my hair, sobered up, got a job. And that's where I met this young lady that led us to Christ. And then I went to Washington Bible College. And they made me wear a bow tie and take a picture. Because <laughs> that's what spiritual people did. That's all right. But there was a transformation and a freedom that I experienced through the gospel. I wouldn't trade for anything. The gospel of grace sets people free. We need to remember that and stand firm in it. It's a liberation. It gives people room to grow and to change. Instead of foisting our, our uh, convictions on them, we let the Holy Spirit develop convictions in their hearts so that they're following God because they want to, not because they have to. And the scriptures go on to say, use your freedom responsibly because someday we'll have, we'll have to answer for how we use that freedom at the judgment seat of Christ. God will say, how did you use your life? And he will judge us for how we used our freedom. What Paul's telling the Galatians is, don't just do something, stand there. Stand firm on the gospel. Don't give an inch. Don't be combative about it. Don't be cause dissension about it, but stand firm on it and don't give an inch. Talking to a brother, dear brother today who's preaching the gospel of grace and training people in the gospel of grace, and the ministry made him stop and virtually shut the door on him. But he stood firm on the gospel. God will bless you. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that you've given to us, the gospel of freedom. We thank you for the freedom that was purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. 
may we ever cherish that and may we ever share that with people <clears throat> who are living in the bonds of sin and guilt, enslaved to Satan and his fear of death, or the insecurity and the lack of assurance of salvation, whatever it is, Lord, we've got the message to set them free. And our challenge today is to send that message around the world. And we thank you for the FGA that that's exactly what you've called us to do. And we're going to do it by the grace of God and his power and his spirit. Not because we have to, but because we want to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace.org at gracelife.org. See you next time.